The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Let's go ahead and go to God's Word. I'm just going to start by reading the passage of the day. Follow along with me in Luke chapter 9, and we'll start at verse 18. And we will read 10 verses. We'll go down to verse 27. And it happened that while he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others say that you are one of the prophets of old, has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you, the disciples, say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. But Jesus warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself or his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of of God. That is Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. So we are reminded that Luke, the associate of the Apostle Paul, not one of the original 12 apostles, is writing his book in about 61 AD, close to 30 years after Jesus has ascended into heaven, writing the longest book in the New Testament. Can't even imagine how long his papyrus scroll was. And how cumbersome that must have been? Because the length of it must have been from that wall to that wall, maybe two times over. That is a long scroll. And we are reminded of who he wrote to. Luke was writing his very long gospel about Jesus Christ to Theophilus. Right. Theophilus, a specific man, individual, a dignitary, a man of repute. We don't know where he was with respect to Christ. Maybe he was on the fence. That seems to be the implication, and Luke promises to Theophilus, I'm writing this to you, most excellent Theophilus, and I'm giving you the exact truth, that's the terminology he uses, about Jesus Christ from eyewitnesses and servants of Christ for the express purpose that Theophilus might make the right decision and conclude that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah, the promised Old Testament Savior of the world, and that he would embrace embrace Jesus as his personal Savior, that he would bow the knee, that Christ would save him and be his Savior. That was the original audience that Luke was writing to. So that makes Luke kind of unique among the Gospels, because the other three Gospels were written for audiences and large groups of people. Luke was, at first, writing just to one man, but God 
also intended and knew that there would be a wider audience to that, uh, people living in the days of Luke and Theophilus, and that the word would spread. And also, of course, uh, God wanted his people through the ages to hear it, so we are the intended audience as well, chronologically speaking. So uh, just always being reminded of what Luke is doing. So Luke is being very strategic, very specific, very selective. There's a mass of material he could choose, uh, but he's being led by the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God ensured that uh, Luke put in his long gospel exactly everything God wanted and only what God wanted in this book because it is inspired scripture. It is God-breathed. Luke was the author and the Holy Spirit of God was the author. It is absolutely perfect. It is absolutely accurate. We can have complete certainty as we read it, even the things that we don't understand. Sometimes that happens when we read Luke's account of what happened, and then we look at a parallel account in either Matthew, Mark, or John, and there's a so-called discrepancy, and then, oh, is that a contradiction or error in the Bible? Absolutely not. Chalk it off to your and my ignorance and short-sightedness, and ask for God's help to resolve those things if God so wants us to have that information. So, we can have confidence in the Word of God. So let's go back to Luke chapter 9 now. Uh, the sermon title today is Born to Die. Born to Die. The passage and the point of emphasis and the question that Jesus asked, we saw this same question recently in the same chapter in, uh, that we talked about a few weeks ago in chapter 9, where Herod was asking the same question, is who is this man? Who is this Jesus? And we spent a lot of time answering that question. And then in the chapter before that, the disciples were asking the same question, who is this man? So that is a question we saw that Luke is repeating throughout his gospel from different people saying, who is this Jesus? Because Theophilus had the same question, who is this Jesus? And Luke emphatically and clearly wants to answer that question. And that's the question posed today. The unique thing today is that it's Jesus is the one who's asking that question. It's not who is Jesus, it's who am I? Who am I? Who am I? And not just my identity and where I was born and that I'm the son of Mary and I was a carpenter and I lived in Nazareth. Jesus is asking more than that. Not just my personal identity, but the character of my person, who I am, my mission, my purpose, why am I here, who do I represent? After two and a half years of all that you've seen from me, Jesus of Nazareth, as a rabbi, as a teacher, as a miracle worker, my attitude, my perfect life, my love towards people, my grace and mercy towards sinners, my courage and my authority and sinlessness as I point out hypocrisy in the establishment of religion here in Judaism. Who am I? What have you concluded after two and a half years of full-scale, widespread exposure over the entire land of Palestine or then the land of Israel? As we know, he's two, almost two years into his Galilean ministry where we saw at the beginning in chapter 4 that he went on this itinerant preaching ministry by himself with his disciples in his shadow, just watching and learning. And he had to hit all the Galilean towns there preaching his message. And we know historically there were over 200 villages and towns he needed to visit, and he did. And that's why it took a year and a half or so. And he's preaching the same message. And the essence of his message is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. That was his message. That's what he was preaching up to this point. This passage here marks a major transition in the ministry of Jesus Christ, and in the Gospel of Luke, and in all the Gospels. Jesus has now put in two, two and a half plus years of ministry, and now he sees the light at the end of the tunnel to fulfill his mission. And it's going to culminate in the ultimate purpose of why he came. 
And we're going to see that here in chapter 9, and even with these questions that Jesus is asking. He's been training his apostles. He thinks, no, they're ready. They're ready for the conclusion to why I came in the biggest transition in the history of planet Earth. So this passage is a nexus of major significant change in the ministry of Jesus Christ and even world history. As now he's looking at the culmination of his ministry, and he's going to explain what that is. Up to this point, the apostles were somewhat ignorant of what that was. And we're going to answer that in this passage. So let's look at verses 18 through 27. To help you out, I just got four points that I divided into. It's a narrative, and just maybe the best way is to thematically kind of divide it up, and there is an underlying theme in verses 18 through 27. Jesus is doing most of the talking here, and there's a theme that knits it all together, and the theme that I put there is Jesus is, he's born to die. That's why he came. He was born to die. That surprises some people. Actually, that surprises a lot of people. Why did Jesus come? What was he all about? What did he do? Well, according to this passage, from his own mouth, he came to die. And there are four points there. I'll just give those to you right now. We'll walk through those. Verses 18 to 20 is the identity of Jesus. The identity of Jesus. Well, who is he? He's the Christ. The identity of Jesus is the Christ is the answer. Uh, Point 221 to 22 is the mission of Jesus. What is the mission of Jesus? It's death. So the identity of Christ, or Jesus is Christ, the mission of Jesus is death. Verse 23, point number three, the condition of Jesus. He lays down stipulations. He lays down conditions by which you can know him personally, by which you can enter into the kingdom. There are conditions. It is conditional. Technically, there's no such thing as the unconditional love of God. There are all kinds of conditions. The main condition is knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is a huge condition. What is the condition of knowing God and being a member of the kingdom of God? Submission. Submission. We see that in verse 23. And then finally, point number four, verses 24 to 27. What is the reward of Jesus? That is for those who meet the qualifications, who understand the stipulation and condition. They obey the condition Jesus has laid down. That is, they bow the knee, they bow the heart, they bow the life to him as judge, to him as Lord, to him as Savior. And then he's true to his promise. And he gives a reward. What is the reward? It's life. It's life, eternal life. So the identity of Jesus, he is Christ. The mission of Jesus, death. The condition of Jesus, submission. And the reward of Jesus is life. And this is all centered around, and the hub of it all, the foundation of it all, is the purpose by which Jesus came, and that was he was born to die. So let's go ahead and look at it. Let's look at those first four verses. Uh, Last week, we saw the ministry of Jesus continuing in Galilee as he's on the circuit, and he's preaching to all these towns and villages wherever he goes. He's preaching the message of the kingdom of God. He's got his apostles with him that he's training. He's doing miracles everywhere he goes. Word about him has been out now for over a year. Massive crowds flock to him everywhere they hear about him being in town. That was the case last week when there was a massive crowd estimated at over 20,000 people because the text, as we read last week, Derek, that he mentioned there were 5,000 men there, meaning not counting the women and children, there are just too many to count, so they just made an estimate. So you're looking at over 20,000 people gathered there that Jesus did a miracle and fed. He fed 
5,000 men with the fish and the loaves. An unprecedented miracle. Unprecedented. And I say that because when you hear about the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, one of the first things that comes to your mind is what? When you hear, oh, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, one thing that immediately should come to your mind is that, oh, that is the only miracle of Jesus in the four Gospels. Or that's the only miracle out of the 35 Gospels recorded about Jesus in the Gospels that's recorded in all four Gospels. The only miracle. The resurrection is in all four, but the miracles of Jesus... The feeding of the 5,000 is the only one that all four gospel writers include, and they do it for a very specific purpose, for a lot of reasons we can't go into, but number one, it was the culmination of his public ministry. Number two, it was the greatest miracle that he did on a grand scale in terms of the impact that it had on the people. Everybody benefited to the thousands. This was the ultimate testimony that he was the Messiah approved of the Father. You couldn't argue with it. That's why. And after that miracle, he pretty much changes his entire ministry. If you don't believe what I just did by feeding over 20,000 people, then you've got a hardened heart. And you know what? God's going to harden it all the more for rejecting me. And from that point on, according to John chapter 12, Jesus said he began to hide himself from the people. And he goes kind of into stealth mode for the rest of his life, concentrating then only on his 12 apostles and a few disciples here and there. So that's why this is so significant and such a, a section of change in Jesus' ministry, it, it pivots in an entirely different direction. Not only the event of the feeding of the 5,000, but something Jesus says here. It is utterly alarming. It is shocking. It is new. It is unexpected. It's exciting, or it should be, but it's not exciting for everybody. It is frustrating. It is infuriating for even some of his disciples, even some of his apostles, when he says it. So let's go and see this alarming statement that Jesus says and begins to announce that will pretty much be the main theme for the next eight months of his ministry. That hasn't been the main theme of his ministry up to this point. The main theme of his ministry up to this point has been a very simple, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. And what that meant to the Jews, because he was only preaching to Jews, is this is Old Testament truth. God made all these promises for hundreds of years in the Old Testament to the Jews that the kingdom of God was coming. The kingdom of God was coming on the earth. God's going to bring heaven down to earth and he's going to do it through a Messiah, a political Messiah, a kingly Messiah. That's their frame of mind. They don't need to be told a whole lot, but when they hear the kingdom of God is at hand, that is exciting news for a Jew who knew his scriptures. And that was the point of emphasis. So having done this for two and a half years, having done miracles everywhere, having denied no one when they came with an illness to be healed or a demon to be cast out, having been gracious and merciful, having been forgiving people their sin publicly with multitudinous, countless witnesses for two and a half years, this is appropriate that Jesus would finally, a little litmus test here. Okay, where are we at now? Where we, I've talked to everybody. Everybody's seen me. Everybody's heard me. Everybody's experienced me. So let's look at this first point, the identity of who Jesus is. He does the miracle of the 5,000 or the 20,000. By the way, between verses 17 and 18, there's a lot more ministry that happened. You can write that down if you wanted to in, in your study. Uh, there are significant events that happened between verse 17 and 18 that Luke does not record. 
Like, if, what is that information? Well, if you go to Matthew chapter 14, verses 22, to chapter 16 to 12, all of that information in those three chapters of Matthew transpires between 17 and 18. And that's a lot of stuff. He has a ministry in Tyre and Sidon. He has a ministry to the Syrophoenician woman who's just begging for crumbs from the table. And Jesus said, no, I've only come to the Jews. He walks on water at this time. He feeds 4,000 men bread and fish. I don't know if you knew that. It wasn't just 20,000. But Matthew tells us in chapter 15, he also fed 4,000 men, not counting women and children. Another 15,000 that he fed in the interim here between verses 17 and 18. So Matthew 14, 22, all the way through uh, Matthew 16, verse 12, and also Mark chapter 6, verse 45, through Mark chapter 8, verse 26, also gives more detail and fills in the gaps. And then also John chapter 6 happened between 17 and 18. Well, why, why did Luke not include all that? Well, because Matthew and Mark included it. Luke was being very purposeful. He was led by the Spirit of God, and he's only giving what he thinks Theophilus needs to hear to have a complete account. And Matthew and Mark has existed in writing for a good 20 years. And no doubt, maybe he gave Matthew and Mark's gospel to Theophilus along with his account. And Luke is complimenting a lot of things that Matthew and Mark don't say. By the way, John, when he wrote his gospel in 90 A.D., 40 years, 50 years after Jesus died, when John wrote his gospel in 90 A.D., long after Matthew, Mark, and Luke were gone, uh, written, John pretty much gives 80% new material. And he is purposely writing stuff that you cannot find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So the Spirit of God was leading the authors to say exactly what the audience needed to hear. So here we are, verse 18. So after the feeding of the 5,000, these miracles, this other ministry, and now he's going to close up the Galilean ministry. And verse 18 says, and it happened that. So there's a transition. So uh, he's been ministering in Galilee, and now he's going to get away from Galilee. That's what it means, a transition. He's moving away from Galilee. Why? What's in Galilee? The massive crowds pressing in on him all the time that he can't get away from. Who else is in Galilee? Uh, the Jewish leaders who hate him and are strategizing as to how they might kill him? Who else is harassing him in Galilee? The Jewish establishment 120 miles down south in Jerusalem. The Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they came all the way. They're chasing him around. They're shadowing him. They're strategizing. How can we trap him? How can we shut him up? How can we kill him? They aren't relenting. It's been going on for two years. And now Jesus knows, you know what? I need to get away. I need to be isolated. I need to be only with my apostles. And so strategically, he slips away from all these people and goes 40 plus miles from the Sea of Galilee, where that was his headquarters in Capernaum. And he's going to go 40 miles up north, almost to the border of Israel, all the way up to the tribe of Dan, all the way up to Mount Hermon, the tallest mountain in Israel, 9,000 feet high. And he's going to stop there. He's going to find an isolated place. And he does. And it's called the city of Caesarea Philippi. He rarely went there, but he did on this occasion. And he goes there with his apostles or his disciples to get away so that he can have one of the most important conversations with his apostles to ready them, to prepare them for what is about to come. Very strategic. That's the context. Isolated, away with the 12 apostles to give them this lesson, to answer the question, or give the identity of Jesus. 
Who is he? He's the Christ. And it happened that while Jesus was praying alone. So he's moving, he's on the road, his apostles were with him, and then immediately he finds a place alone to pray, to be quiet, to be with the Father seven times in the Gospel of Luke. Luke notes that Jesus went away to pray alone. The private prayer life of Jesus. What an uh, excellent model for us. Quiet time, alone time, one-on-one time with the Father. We need it, don't we? If Jesus, the God-man, needs it, how much more do we need? And that's what Jesus is doing. It happened that while he was away praying alone, got away from his apostles to talk to the Father, to pray to the Father, then he engages with the apostles after prayer time, and the disciples were with him, probably the apostles, those disciples. And he questioned them. He kept questioning them. A little Q&A from the master teacher, the greatest rabbi there ever was. And he questioned them, and here was one of his questions, saying, who do the people say that I am? Who do the people, the aklas, the crowd, uh, the fickle mob, everywhere we go, who do they say? What's the word on the street? As you got your hair to the ground, what are you hearing? Everybody's got an opinion of Jesus. And the disciples tell him in verse 19, they said, well, some are saying that you are John the Baptist, which is what Herod said, and it could be that Herod started that rumor. Some people saying you're John the Baptist risen from the dead. Others are saying you're Elijah, because Malachi in the Old Testament, 400 years before Christ, promised, God promised through Malachi that another Elijah was coming, the second Elijah, and the spirit and power of the Elijah, that prophet would come and prepare the way of the Messiah. So when you see the next Elijah of Israel, know that the Messiah is near at hand, and that Elijah was John the Baptist, not reincarnated, but in the power, in the ministry, filling the office of Elijah. Jesus said that. John the Baptist, he's the the Elijah you're supposed to be looking for. He is the preparer. That wasn't Jesus. Jesus wasn't preparing the way. Actually, that's very demeaning for people to say, oh, you're just Elijah. Because who was Elijah? He was just a man. He was a sinner. He was evil in his heart. He needed God's grace. He had a very short ministry. He had a very one-dimensional ministry. To bring Jesus down to that level of any human is completely demeaning, and they totally missed the mark of who Jesus is. Jesus is not a man. He's more than that. So again, they're wrong. And who are giving the answers? These are people who have witnessed Jesus' ministry for two plus years. Some of these people actually got healed by them, by Jesus. They got the demons cast out by Jesus. They got food, free food from Jesus. They followed him everywhere he went. They heard him in the synagogue. They heard him preach everywhere. And what did they conclude after all? They've never seen anything like it. He's raising people from the dead. They're saying, well, he's Elijah. No. Well, and others, Jesus is saying that you're just one of the prophets of old, like Jeremiah. One of the other gospel tells us, they said, some people think you're Jeremiah. For whatever reason. Maybe because Jeremiah was single. Never got married. Jesus never got married. We don't know. So they're given all these wrong answers. Um, and then Jesus says to them, okay, but more importantly, but, okay, I, I knew that was coming. I knew the crowds didn't know me. Je- Jesus said that at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2. They're all, hallelujah, we love you, Jesus. Thanks for the miracles. And he's like, he didn't trust them. I know what the fickle mob thinks, but what about you? You're my disciples. I hand-selected you. I prayed over you. I'm commissioning you. You're going to build the church. What about you? We've had private conversations. Are you going to do any better? They do. Verse 20 says, 
Um, when Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up, the spokesman of the apostles here. And he says, you are the Christ of God. As a matter of fact, Matthew gives us more detail. Peter spoke up and he, and he blurted out and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And that was the truth. And for two plus years, Jesus, uh, Peter didn't know that. Just recently, back, what was it, chapter 8, where the apostles saw a miracle like they'd never been seen done before, and when it's done, they're like, well, who does this Jesus think he is? Who is he? We don't know. Now, finally, it seems like, oh, Peter's got it. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Matthew also tells us, Jesus commends him and says, that is right, Simon. And then he calls him Peter, gives him a new name. And you gave the right answer. That's the appropriate answer. That's the complete answer. Thou art the Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament, and all that that entails. Thou art the Christ, the Son. He's related literally to God the Father, the Son of God. He has the same nature as God. Jesus is deity. That's what that means. Prior to that, Peter never said that before. Prior to this statement, Jesus never knew. I mean, sorry, Peter never knew that. And that's why Jesus tells him, uh, excellent answer, Peter. And you know what? You didn't come up with it on your own. My Father in heaven revealed that to you. That was divine, supernatural, immediate, special revelation. That's not human intuition. You, weren't, you didn't learn that by education. It wasn't a feeling you had. Nobody told it to you. My father revealed that to you instantaneously, immediately. And that was preparing him for apostolic ministry, where when the church began, that's what God would keep doing with Peter and the apostles, giving them supernatural, immediate, divine, special revelation. So they would speak for God to lay the foundation of the church. So this is tremendous. And so Peter blurts that out, and Jesus commands him, and the other 11 apostles, they're celebrating, praise God, this is awesome. Even Judas, who's probably in this group, and you know, Judas is probably thinking, he's probably thinking, yeah, we're going to take over right now. Jesus is going to reign as king. He's going to overthrow Herod. He's going to overthrow Caesar. We're going to overthrow Rome. We're going to reinstate all those promises in the Old Testament. I'm going to be a vice regent and have my own, and on and on. Who knows what was going on in his mind? And they're celebrating. And then uh, Matthew 16 tells us that after Jesus commanded Peter and said, great job, Peter, and you got that information from my father, and then... Uh, Jesus is going to go on with the bad news in verse 21 and 22, which we'll get to in just a second. But he gets the identity of Jesus Christ right, the Christ, the Son of God. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. Well, didn't they know that? Well, they kind of did, but they weren't quite sure of what that meant. Because the problem was these Jews, including the apostles, and in the synagogues they were raised in, the homes they were raised in, the Jewish education they were, they were receiving, they were not getting the full counsel of God. They were getting selective truths out of the Old Testament. They had the whole Testament, but they weren't being taught the whole Testament properly. There were things they were missing big time. And as a result, they came up with a very myopic, deficient view of who the Messiah was. And that was true of the Jewish leadership as well. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. They had a myopic, compromised, messed up view of Jesus Christ. Most of the true information smothered by human tradition. So they couldn't even understand who Jesus was properly if they wanted to. It was so shrouded in falsehoods. And this has been true all throughout history. You probably know somebody personally who maybe you shared the gospel with. could be a family member. Or somebody you know, a colleague or whatever. And they've heard everything 
conceivable about who Jesus is from the Bible, and they still come to the wrong conclusion. They've heard about his miracles, they heard his demands, they heard his conditions, they've read the stories, they heard it in a Sunday school class that they grew up in, and they are still coming. And when you ask them who's Jesus, they're coming up with the wrong answer. That has been true for 2,000 years. People, coming, people keep coming up with the wrong answer, and that was true in the day when Jesus was teaching. Most of Israel, most of the Jews, still were coming up with the wrong answer to this question. Who is Jesus, and who is, who is he truly? Because it has to be revealed by the Spirit of God. So information and data is not, is not enough to override our deficiencies. What's that? Our finiteness, our sinfulness, our self-centeredness, satanic blindness, peer pressure from others, the lure of false religion. There's much going against us on a human level. God needs to override all of that with the supernatural divine act of God. Through his truth, through the Spirit of God, taking the Bible and making it alive in our heart and opening, literally illuminating our understanding in a way that only he can. Salvation is from the Lord. That's what needed to happen. That's what happened to Peter here. Jesus is the Christ. Just kind of interesting, as you do a survey of history for 2,000 years all the way up to this day, here are all the wrong monikers or names that people have given to Jesus after thinking it through. Who is Jesus? And here's the answers that have been given. Many of these are still... Well, he was a moral example. He was a good teacher. He was a rabbi. He's a, he was a philanthropist. He was a revolutionary. He was an illusionist. I'm not making these up, by the way. These have been formal answers. He's a community organizer. We heard that one eight years ago from the House of Representatives here in our country. He's a community organizer. He's a social justice warrior. We've heard that one recently here in our country. He's a socialist. That one's been around for 150 years. He's a communist. That one's been repeated time and time again. Here's a new one that's getting uh, new attention. He's a Marxist. He was a Marxist. Came to liberate people strictly on an economic level. He's a he was a political agitator. Here's uh, unbelieving Jews throughout the history have said that he was an Essene, a Pharisee, or a zealot. He was a vigilante. He was a cult leader. He was a guru. He was a philosopher. We heard that from one of our presidents. He was a polygamist, so says the Mormon church and others. He was just a prophet, just a man. He was John the Baptist risen from the dead. He was the spirit brother of Lucifer, says the Mormon church. He's, he's just, he was Michael the archangel at one time, says Jehovah's Witnesses. He's a demigod, said so-called early Christians in the early church. Less than a god, a sub-god, a partial god, a sub-deity, not quite fully god. He's the son of God. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, this is, what I, this is what I was taught for 18 years. Jesus is the son of God, and it never went beyond that. It was that he had a special relationship with the Father, but I was never told that the Son of God means he is deity. He is of the same nature as the Father. He is the uncreated one. He is the eternal one. He is the creator. He is all glorious. He is someone we pray to. He is the only Savior. He is deity. That's what Son of God means. What else? Well, this is recent for the last 200 years. Well, we don't know who he is. He's the historical Jesus. We really can't know. That's what you see on Time Magazine and Newsweek Magazine all the time. Or here's a popular one. He didn't exist, like the editor from the San Francisco Chronicle, who was a very famous religious writer. He didn't, Jesus never existed. He was a, a myth. And then if you've been paying attention to the news lately, celebrating its 50th year anniversary, what is Jesus? He is a superstar. Jesus Christ superstar. On their 
cross-country tour about who Jesus is. What's that? Well, I remember in the 1970s, growing up in the Catholic Church, every Catholic I knew had that album. It was an album. It was called Jesus Christ Superstars. It was a musical. It's called, it was a, a rock musical drama, supposedly about the life of Christ, and it ends with the crucifixion. It's a story about Christ that has no resurrection. That's blasphemous. But that's what it was. But we all had it. Listen to that album and music all the time. I had the word, every song on the album I had memorized. And I thought I was being a good Christian, a good Catholic. Everyone I knew, that thing's been around for 50 years, and they're doing it again, the rock drama about Jesus. It doesn't have the resurrection. In other words, Jesus is just a man. That is a distortion of the truth. So, actually, literally, growing up in 18 years as a Roman Catholic, I was taught that Jesus was the Son of God, had a special relationship. I never understood or was told that he was deity. And I was never told his main reason for coming to earth in a way that I could understand. I don't ever remember being explicitly told Jesus came for one purpose, that was to die. I mean, it's so simple. How could we miss that message? Jesus came to die. So growing up for 18 years in that religion and listening to Jesus Christ Superstar over and over and over and over and over, singing to the words that I had memorized, and it grieved me, and I just kept saying, oh, I wish Jesus didn't have to die. Why did he die? Why couldn't he have escaped? Why couldn't he have just hid and run from them? That's what I believed for 18 years. And then I read the Bible for the first time when I was 19 and saw the rest of the story. Don't feel sorry for Jesus. He came to die. He was born to die. I wouldn't have life if he didn't die. Praise God, I missed the most important part of the message. What is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died. That's the gospel. Christ died for sin. I missed it. Then I heard the rest of the story from the Bible. Then the Spirit of God illumined my understanding. Then I embraced that and I... I don't feel sorry that Jesus died. Thank God Jesus died. Thank you, Lord, for dying for me and for sin, for giving me life. Well, let's go to point number two. Okay, you got the first question right. And then verse 21, very curious. Point number two, what is the mission of Jesus? Verse 21, after commanding them, Jesus warned his apostles or his disciples and instructed them. So he gave a mandate. And listen to what he said. He gives them a, he basically muzzles them. And he, he instructs them not to tell this to anybody. You know what you just told Peter that, told me, Peter, that you got correct? That I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Don't tell that to anyone. Don't share that message anywhere where you go. Don't you find that odd? Remember when Jesus commissioned the apostles we saw early in chapter 9? And he said, go preach the kingdom. Go preach the kingdom, go everywhere. And then Jesus has been preaching the kingdom for two years now. That's his message. Certainly you would think that up to this point, the message that Jesus is preaching to people or the apostles when they went out and preached the kingdom, they were knocking on doors and, oh, let me tell you the kingdom of God, the story of the kingdom. Oh, what's that? Well, you know, Jesus, he came down from heaven and he's always been God and he's the eternal God and he took on a human body and he was born of a virgin and then he lived a perfect life and then he died on the cross and he rose again from the dead and he ascended back into heaven. And if you believe him and accept him into your heart, then you can be saved. That is not the message the apostles were preaching. Why? Because Jesus hadn't died. As a matter of fact, you know what? <laughs> this is the alarming thing. The apostles 
Most of them didn't know he was supposed to die. They didn't know that was part of the message. They didn't know it was through his death that he would usher in the kingdom. That's how it gets here. So that's the irony. They're out preaching, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus has something to do with the kingdom of God. And we are glad to be affiliated with him. And his death was not a part of their message for two years. How do we know that? Because if you read Matthew, the parallel passage, as soon as Jesus says, verse 22, he says, but he warned his apostles and instructed them not to tell anybody that he was the Christ, the Son of God, and all of its implications, and said, keep that hush for now. Why? Verse 22. Well, here's what's important, and here's what still needs to happen for you to have a complete message about who I am. I'm not just a miracle worker, because that's what he's been up to this point. I don't just give out free food. I'm not just a rabbi. I'm not just a teacher. That's not even the heart of the message. Here's the heart of the message, verse 22. And he said to his apostles, the son of man, that's himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. That's the religious leadership in Jerusalem at the temple. And he must be killed. That must have just burned their ears. They have never heard this before. Some of them have been with Jesus two plus years. They had never heard this before. What do you mean you're going to be killed? This is not what I signed up for. I can guarantee Judas was not happy. This short circuits all of my plans. This is new stuff. Why are you saying this, Jesus? Peter got so infuriated with this. Matthew says that he went and he literally grabbed Jesus. He grabbed him and he took Jesus, grabbed him by the arm, pulled him away from the rest of the apostles and began to rebuke Jesus. Megenita, God forbid, no way, you are not going to die. Stop saying that. And then Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, you're missing it. That's the very purpose I came. That's the first prophecy in the Bible of how God deals with sin and the fall. Genesis 3.15. The Messiah would come and die. That's been the plan all along. So Jesus rebuked him on the spot. This is the rest of the gospel message. Jesus must suffer and die for sin. And Peter's just like, once he heard that Jesus was going to be killed, he put his fingers in his ears, because he didn't hear the rest of it probably, and be raised up on the third day. Peter, I'll rise again three days later. I'll be the risen Lord. You should be celebrating. By the way, this is in keeping with your Old Testament, Peter. That's my mission, the mission of Jesus, his death. So in other words, Jesus wanted them to be silent, the apostles. Because he wanted them to have the complete message, which would not happen until Jesus ascended. And then 50 days later, he would send the Holy Spirit to empower his apostles to found the church, to build the church, to spread the church with a complete gospel, not half of a gospel, not a truncated gospel, not a Jesus who doesn't have the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension that made him Lord. Like Jesus Christ Superstar, which has no resurrection. It has no ascension. It doesn't embrace the full deity of Jesus Christ. So this was, I mean, the, the whirlwind of emotions the apostles were going through right now. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You got it. Amen. Celebration. I'm going to be killed. And then Peter down in the valleys. And then Jesus rebuking him. And 
what a scene to behold. Point number three, Jesus elaborates on this message of him being the Son of God, the Christ, the God-man who came for one purpose, to die for sin, to absorb the wrath of the Father and all the sin of the world of those who would believe on him, to rise again, to ascend to heaven as the glorious Savior. That's the complete message. And he begins to talk about the conditions of how someone might embrace this great truth. In seed form, that's verse 23, in the condition of Jesus, how do you receive this? Forgiveness of sin, embracing Jesus as personal Savior, entering into the kingdom. And that Jesus said in verse 23, it's submission. It's all about submitting, submitting to Jesus as Lord. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. Promise guaranteed. He's Lord. He's master. We are slaves. We own nothing. He owns everything. He deserves everything. All of our loyalty, all the honor, all the glory, all the praise, everything. I am nothing. He is everything. That's the attitude of a true believer before Christ our King. Summarizes verse 23, and Jesus was saying to them all, saying in a continual ongoing manner. So he elaborated on this. He probably preached on it and he developed it. Summarizing by, if, you, if anyone wishes to come after me, to follow me, to be a true disciple of mine, maybe he's looking at Judas eye to eye at the time when he sends, says this. Knowing what Judas just heard, that Jesus is going to die. Judas probably having second thoughts. If anyone, including you, Judas, wishes to come after me and be my disciple and follow me, then you must deny yourself. Deny yourself. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about God. Becoming a Christian cost nothing. Becoming a Christian cost everything. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. What's that? Be willing to die. Be willing to die. What was a cross? It was how they executed people. A cross is not some hard trouble you have in your life. Oh, my! one of my family members, they're a cross I bear daily. No, wrong use of this passage. Oh, my boss, he's a cross that I bear daily. No, maybe you're the cross that he bears daily. That isn't what this means. This is death. I'm going to die. You need to be willing to die. And they will die. The apostles all will die except one. John. This was literal. So how do you become a Christian follower of Jesus? Submission. Bow everything to him. Maybe today you're here and you haven't really bowed the knee completely and totally. Maybe it's been half-hearted and you've been somewhat reserved. And, oh, I want this corner of my life still. And I want to be in control of my life. Then, well, you're in danger. You need to give complete and absolute control to Jesus Christ, completely submitting to him, denying yourself in every area of life. And it takes supernatural faith to do that. You cry out to God and ask for his help, he'll answer that prayer. Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner, and he will answer that prayer instantaneously. He'll change your life. He'll save you, and you'll receive eternal life forever and ever. You'll be secure in the palm of his hand. And finally, Jesus closes after giving new information regarding the fullness of the gospel. And that's the reward. There are rewards for how you respond to this. You can accept Christ for who Jesus says he is, and you can meet the stipulations, which is bowing in 100% submission to him, denying self. If you do, there's a blessed reward. If you reject that, there's the reward of consequence, and Jesus lays it out what it is here. One is a, a blessed uh, reward. The other one is absolutely frightening. So what is the reward? For whoever, verse 24, the reward is life, for whoever wishes to save his life, to save his soul, that's what he's talking about, that which lives on for all eternity, after you leave this life, that's what it means. For whoever wishes to save his life, to know God eternally, and it begins in this life, then you need to lose it. You need to give up control. 
and give control to Christ. But whoever loses his life for my sake... So when you become a Christian, you do, you lose your life. You give up your old ways, you give up your old desires. You don't become a Christian by doing works, but you just entrust it all to God. God, you are my Lord, my Savior, I submit to you, please save me. That's what it means. A complete letting go. And whoever loses his life for my sake, for the sake of Jesus Christ, then he is the one who will save it. In other words, that's how you're born again. That's how you get saved. That's how you become a Christian. That's how you are guaranteed to have eternal life that begins in this life and will go on for all eternity in a holy blessedness with God forever. If you don't do that, you're in trouble. For what if a man... What is a man profited if he gains the whole world, all this world's goods, a mass... That's what you just live for this life. Wealth and popularity and power, pleasure. A lot of people live that way. For what is a man if he... Uh, Profit if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. Verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. That's a startling statement there. For whoever is ashamed of me. Do you ever catch yourself being ashamed of Jesus? Embarrassed by Jesus? Embarrassed that you're a Christian? Ashamed that you're a Christian? Nervous to say something because you're afraid of what other people around might think because you're a Christian? Ashamed of Jesus? Remember this verse. Jesus doesn't like that. So we have to repent of that. We have to ask for God's help. God, help me be bold. Help me be proud to be a Christian. That I'm a child of the Father, that I know Christ. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. And the glory of the Father and his holy angels. At the end of the age, there's going to be a day of reckoning. Nobody can hide anymore. And finally, verse 27, but I say to you truthfully, uh, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What a promise. But I say to you truthfully, those standing, maybe it was the 12 apostles, and he gives this promise. Not everybody here is going to die until they actually see the kingdom of God. Well, what is the kingdom of God that these apostles got to see literally with their own eyes and experience it? We'll find out next week. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.